Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell true stories from their own life. I'm Paul Dorn and I'm loaded with the head cold and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. This week we have a fine selection of stories for you from three different evenings. But for this, he was repeatedly beaten with a strap or on occasions actually punched by some teachers with their fists. Just miles and miles of red ground and ground isn't meant to be red. The word for library is of course, Bibliotheque, merci beaucoup. (laughs) So prepare for a long lost friend, a trip to Mars, and what gets lost in translation. Okay, here's our first story and it was told in November in the Black Box in Belfast when the theme was Small World. Here's 10 by 9 regular, Jim Livingston. A world with 8 billion people scattered across 7 continents and 195 countries. And yet all of us occasionally experience surprise at how small this world can feel especially meeting people you know or used to know when you least expect it. Like the time I was working in the United States and feeling very homesick. In a Cleveland, Ohio bar one night, surrounded by strangers, I suddenly heard the distinctive melodic strain of a Belfast accent among all the American drawls. Thank you, big lad, hey! Surrounded by strangers, I I searched the bar and and there he was, Kevin, on the other side of the bar, my old mate from Queens. We were both so pleased to see each other at a time, as it happens, when both of us were missing home. It really is a small world filled with lots of little pleasures. But this small world can also reassure us about the human condition. I was playing with a band in a large Irish nightclub, such things do exist, in London in the late 1970s. Yes, I am that old. It was called The Bush at Shepherd's Bush. The star of the show was, in fact, my mother. I was her musical director and accompanist. She was known as Bridie Gallagher, the girl from Donegal. She was once described by the BBC as Ireland's first pop star, She was appearing nightly in the club for a week, and it was packed every night. During these trips, I would often see people who I had met before on previous tours. It was always nice to see them again, swap news and gossip. It was part of the life of touring and performing. Nothing exceptional, really. One night, however, was very different. On stage that night, I was playing guitar as usual, leading the band. In front of the stage was a small dance floor where the audience jived and jiggled away with frantic energy, while others sat at tables drinking and singing along with Bridie. For some reason, I noticed a couple standing at the edge of the dance floor near the bar. She was stunningly beautiful, with long blonde hair, shimmering dress and a gorgeous smile. He was smaller in stature, with a long, bright ginger beard, with an amazing ginger afro hairstyle and wearing leather jacket and leather trousers. They certainly didn't look local. They were both staring at me and I felt a little uneasy. 
I definitely didn't recognise them. Eventually the show ended and I was in the dressing room with the rest of the band. There was a knock on the door. It was the manager. Jim, there's a couple at the stage door from Australia who say they know you and really like to see you. I don't know anybody in Australia, George, but I'll come anyway and speak with them. When I went down the corridor, there waiting was the gorgeous blonde lady and the guy with the amazing red Afro hairdo I had seen in the audience. Hi, Jim. It's so good to see you again. As soon as I heard his voice, I knew him instantly. I gasped. Jesus, Tony. Tony, it's you. I flung my arms around him and we hugged each other tightly. It was Tony Rafferty. A pal from school who I hadn't seen for ten years. And he introduced his beautiful companion, Katie. We were in the same class at grammar school until he left after fifth year. For those five years, we've been the closest of buddies, weirdly sharing a fascination for model railways rather than girls. (laughs) We each had a Hornby railway set in our attics at home, but Tony was special. He could fix absolutely anything, a malfunctioning engine or carriage or faulty wheels or the electric control box used to operate the trains. Sadly, however, Tony suffered horrendous treatment at school. Sometimes he missed his homework or got questions wrong in class or was chatting when he shouldn't have. Yes, he wasn't the perfect student. But for this, he was repeatedly beaten with a strap or a cane or on occasions actually punched by some teachers with their fists. And of course, Tony never, ever responded. It was the dreadful culture of schooling in the 1960s, certainly in boys' schools. Corporal punishment was the norm. I called brutality. And tragically, some teachers seemed to enjoy it too much. When I witnessed those beatings as a 13 and 14-year-old, it made me cry and very frightened. I know I wasn't the only one. Tony was admittedly not very academically inclined, as they say, nor did he do well in exams. So he was repeatedly told by those same teachers that he would never be a success or come to any good in life. But Tony was a gentle and kind boy. He was never involved in fights or bullying, although he was bullied by other boys. I liked him immensely. I think I loved him. Now, he was not a saint. One afternoon, he had mitched off school after lunch and gone down to Anderson Macaulay's department store, where, with his duffel coat neatly draped over his arm, he succeeded in pinching a new Hornby railway carriage (laughs) that he wanted but couldn't afford from the toy department. Clear signs of a future entrepreneur, I thought. After fifth year and five years of continuous beatings, he did not return to school and simply disappeared from my life. Now, incredibly, he was here right in front of me. It was a very, very emotional reunion. There was a bar for the performers backstage, so I took Tony and Katie there and ordered drinks. We chatted for ages, catching up on our lives. I learned that 
He had emigrated with his mum and dad to Australia and got a job as an apprentice mechanic in a Melbourne garage. He proved to be a mechanical wizard, especially with motorbikes, and started competing in motocross scrambling competitions. Within five years, he became one of the top Australian motocross riders, winning Australian and international championships several times. He also met the love of his life, Katie, the blonde angel with him now. And then with great pride, he announced, we just got married two weeks ago. They were now on their honeymoon. No ordinary honeymoon, oh by God, no. It was a round-the-world trip lasting four weeks. They'd already been to Singapore, Rome and Paris. They'd be going on from London next to New York, San Francisco, Honolulu and then back to Melbourne. So he was obviously doing quite well financially, I thought. What brought you here tonight, Tony? It's incredible that of all places in London you should come here. Well, we're staying at the Hilton and Park Lane and we were in a taxi back, coming back from Windsor Castle after doing some sightseeing when I saw the poster outside the club advertising your mother. I told Cathy, I knew her. I know him, her son, and often had tea in their house. Katie said, well, let's go and see her then. And so here we are. Of course, the last thing I expected was to find you here too. That's the best bit, Tony said. Katie giggled with delight. It's so lovely to see you guys together after all these years. We talked and talked about old times, but mostly their life in Australia. Tony certainly seemed to have found happiness and success, and yet was still the gentle and kind guy I knew in school days. In that sense, he had changed very little. I asked him, will you be visiting Belfast? Maybe we can get together again. But he shook his head very slowly. Too many painful memories, Jim. Sorry, I can't face going back. I've no family there anymore, and frankly, I don't need those memories. I'd be afraid who I might meet. You know what I mean. He mumbled sadly, looking at the floor. Katie put her arms around him and kissed his cheek. He smiled at her. I understood immediately. Before he and Kitty left, we hugged again and promised to keep in touch and then they were gone. I was so grateful at that moment to this small world to see him once again and spend precious minutes with my old school pal Tony, a pal who had suffered far, far too much at school, but I'm proud to say had magnificently proven those gutless teachers so wrong as he set off now on his honeymoon trip around this small world with his beautiful bride, a successful, happy man, a real bloody champion. What a sad and gorgeous story, Jim. Thank you so much for that. And if you think you can follow in Jim's storytelling footsteps, then get in touch through our website, 10by9.com. We are always, always looking for storytellers. Or contact us through our social media channels. Okay, on to our second story. And we were in my home city of Derry. And the theme was new beginnings. Here's the wonderful Michaela McDade. 1976. Height of the Troubles. Depth of Winter. 
rain, rioting, and a relentless helicopter hum bear down on 16 Craigan Road, the McDade family home. Inside, Patrick, Susie, and their four children, all aged under 10, are crammed into the small firelit sitting room. Patrick struggles to follow the football match on a crackling transistor radio, while the children bicker loudly over sofa space and TV volume. Susie is oblivious to the noise. Her mind's on the fish supper she'd get from it later. No spuds to peel or dishes to wash tonight. Flicking through the dairy journal between sips of tea and puffs of cigarette, a small ad catches her eye from the classified section where local employment ads used to be. Call for tradesmen. Are you a carpenter, plumber, or electrician? If so, Australia needs you. A simple coupon to fill and PO box number for its return. Patrick's a carpenter. A very good carpenter. She reads the ad aloud to her husband. What do you think, love? I could post it tomorrow when I'm down the town, Mimi Ma. Patrick leans closer to the radio. The football match reached fever pitch. Sibling rivalry is boiling over. Reception fades just as one child pushes another child from the sofa to the floor by a thud and a wail. What? What? Aye, right, Susie. Whatever you think, post it. Sure, it'll do no harm for the price of a stamp. I was that thud and wail, the baby of the family, and this is my story. A year later, landing on Mars. It's not real glass. It's like the cups I had at my birthday party. It's plastic glass. And it's not a square window either. It's an oval window. I know that from watching play school and telly. Because they always ask, what window will we look through today? And who can we see through the window? We always waited, but they never, ever saw me or my friend Ketchling. They always saw Wayne's with funny names that nobody in my school had, like Elizabeth. My mommy says they only see Protestant Wayne's, and I'm not a Protestant. The plastic glass wonder rumbles like a hungry tummy when I put my head against it. It's cold. I stretch up and lean my head under it more. I make my eyes wild small. They look at the plastic glass instead of through the plastic glass. And there's wee scratches and bits of dirt. It's two wonders. My daddy says that's called plastic. Now what do you call it? Double glazing. No clouds. The sky's very blue. It's like when I painted school and I put a teeny tiny bit of white paint under the blue paint and I mix it all up. Miss Doherty says that makes light blue. So this is a light blue sky. I like blue. Girls are meant to like pink, but I like blue better. I don't tell anybody that in case they think I'm a wee boy. All the land's the same color, red. No roads or houses, just miles and miles of red ground. And ground isn't meant to be red. It's meant to be green if it's grass or brown if it's muck, but never red. 
It's different from the, rain in my, the red in my paint set. That red's nice and bright like a postbox. This looks like it used to be nice and bright, and then it got old and dirt, and it got burnt in the hot sun. At the airport, my daddy laughed and said this was our very own private jet plane because it's a six-seater and there's six people in my family. So we have the whole plane to ourselves. The only other person is the pilot. He's sitting up in the driver's seat in front of a brown curtain that he left a wee bit open so we could talk to my daddy behind him. Daddy asked the pilot about the green dots on the red ground. Green dots? Yeah, that's spin effects, mate. The pilot talks funny. His nose is blocked. And he sounds like he's asking a question, even when he's answering one. Spanifex. I try to say it in my head, but it's like Pascari, and I can never say Pascari right. The back of the pilot's neck is very brown and shiny. It's like my big brother Barry's confirmation shoes. He sweats a lot too. I'm glad he's the pilot because he is good at driving the plane. I look as hard as I can for houses or shops or roads, nothing. Only red dirt and spunny effects. Where's all the people? Where do they go when it rains? What do the Waynes do all day? We know school they go day. Sometimes the land is wild rocky, huge big stones the same colour as the ground. There is hills in the far away, but they're not normal round hills like Ireland. These hills are long and they're flat on the top. It looks like a planet from my first cyclopedia. I can't mind what one, but I think it's probably Mars. I'll be able to tell Kathleen that I was up in an airplane, high up in a light blue sky in a place with no roads or no houses, only rocky red ground like Mars. But I won't see Kathleen again for a very, very, very long time. My mommy and daddy both said that. I didn't even know our new house was a house at first because it doesn't have upstairs. My daddy said it's called a bungalow. He told Barry that was because they ran out of bricks when they were making it, so the foreman says, well, just bungalow roof, roof on it. <laughs> Barry and daddy laughed at that, but it's not funny. Because how am I going to go up a stairs to bed at night and come down in the morning in a house with no stairs? I go under the living room and I sit up on the red sofa with Teddy. My throat's hard and my eyes are all stingy. Mammy sits on the sofa and she lifts me up on her knee. She strokes my hair away from my face. Ach, shh. There, there, pet. You're just exhausted. It's been a way long journey for you. Mammy smells the same. And her tummy and arms are the same as when she nursed me on the sofa in our old house. She's wearing her favourite cardigan. It's soft and wee fluffy bits tickle my cheek. I reach under the pocket and play with a crumpled up bit of tissue that's always in there. My mammy's still the same. Even in a strange, stupid bungalow house with no stairs. I'm in my new bed. It's against the wall. But there's no wallpaper. Just a plain white wall. The sheets are hard and cold and they smell like new. They're too clean. 
My sheets in my old bed were soft and they smelled like hot press. Sometimes they smelled like pee if I had a wee accident. The grey blanket is itchy. Mammy says that my own pink blanket will come in the container. And sure, at least I have Terry. I don't know what a container is, but I'm glad I have Terry. I pull my legs up inside my nightie and I rock a wee bit on my side just to get comfortable, not because I'm a baby or anything. I hold Terry tight under my neck so his head touches under my chin and I put my thumb inside his ear with the fur still clean. I have to keep rubbing Teddy's ear because he's a wee bit scared and it'll help him to sleep. The door's half open, some light's coming in. It's very quiet, but I can hear voices from the sitting room down the hall instead of down the stairs where a sitting room should be. I listen wild hard for outside. I'm listening for rain, or wind, or cars, or helicopters, or, sil or sirens, or nothing. That's quiet on Mars. Michaela, I love that persona. You really bring the young you to life. Thanks so much. Remember, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but you can make a donation via Patreon or PayPal if you like. Or maybe give the podcast a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. That is Apple Podcasts or Spotify, for example. We'd be very grateful. But it's more important that you just sit back, relax and enjoy. Okay, on to our third and final story this week. And it was told in the black box in October when the theme was trick. It was his first 10 by 9 though you wouldn't know it. Here's Adam Milligan. Well, tonight I'm going to tell you a short story about how a cohort of French academics know me as Adam Boner. <laughs> uh, about 13 years ago, I, I was working in the south of France. I was in a small village near Aix-en-Provence. Uh, and unfortunately, whenever I arrived in France, I had only a few remnants of GCSE French still rattling around inside my head, and none of which enabled me to engage in anyone in conversation beyond the basic or the banal. Je m'appelle Adam. Je viens d'Irlande du Nord. Dans le week-end, je jouais foot avec mon père. Mon pull est rouge. Les ananas, c'est que combien? Nothing of any use whatsoever. But thankfully, those around me were gracious and engaging in equal measure as they conversed with me in English while I set about trying to learn the language spoken by all and sundry around me without exception. To assist in this endeavor, and this was before limitless data and the modern ubiquity of smartphones, I had taken my old French dictionary with me, which still included within it notes I'd scribbled in preparation for an open book written GCSE exam. I'd also downloaded an entire podcast called Coffee Break French onto my MP3 player, and I dutifully listened to it during my work with a notebook to hand to jot down the words I was struggling with. And as it happens, my work was studying monkeys. Now, I don't need to get into great detail about this, but I bring it up because it directly relates to the demise of the aforementioned dictionary, which was the 26th of June, 2009. I wasn't so attached to my dictionary that I have that specific date traumatically etched on my memory, but I remember it because it was the day after Michael Jackson had died. In MJ's memory, I had decided that rather than listening to my French podcast during that day's research, 
I was instead going to work my way through any and all Jacko that I had on my MP3 player. So I set my notebook down, set my dictionary down carefully beside it, and focused on studying the monkeys and the music. The monkeys, all baboons, were housed in a large enclosure, and I stood outside it but right beside the fence, and for the purpose of my research, every 15 minutes I would select a new monkey to observe, recording any and all interactions he or she had with the others around them. And on this particular occasion, and perhaps as a distraction, the monkey I was watching had spent almost 10 minutes in the far left corner of the enclosure, and thus my attention was on the far left corner of the enclosure. Whether I was at that moment listening to Smooth Criminal or not, I can't remember. <laughs> but the monkey I was observing suddenly upped and dashed to the near right corner of the enclosure, and in doing so, ran past a small sub-adult male chewing on the red, white, and blue cover page of my Collins Pocket French Dictionary. The remnants of its pages scattered about his feet and providing entertainment and limited nutrition for his friends. <laughs> I can't say for sure that this is what precipitated subsequent events, but I am curious if my dictionary could have prevented them. As whilst my French learning continued, it did somewhat impaired. So some of you may remember from your, library, uh, sorry, your, your language learning classes, the danger of false friends. I can hear a few titters there suggest perhaps that's the case. And a classic example in French being la librairie, which does not translate as the library, but the bookstore. The word for library is, of course, bibliothèque. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> now, false friends are one thing, but it seems I specifically fell for those of a Freudian nature. And as it happens, every single occasion was over dinner. Now, I was starting to get grips with French and giving it my best go whenever possible. And again, this was hugely helped by the very encouraging friends I now had around me who provided corrections and translations whenever I stumbled. On one particular day, we were out for lunch to celebrate a birthday. And as it was July and it was the south of France, I happened to remark how hot it was. Except I didn't. <laughs> what I did say was that I am very horny. <clears throat> Je suis très chaud. Je suis, I am, très chaud, very warm. Je suis très chaud, I am very horny. <laughs> My error, I then learnt, was that I should have said, I have, j'ai chaud. Or that I should have just commented on the warmth of the weather. Il fait chaud. On another occasion, I was a dinner guest of the minister whose church I was attending in France. Amongst other things, I was asked how I was enjoying my stay, and I responded by telling them how excited I was to be there. <laughs> Except I didn't. <laughs> Instead, I announced to his young family how aroused France made me. <laughs> Je suis très excité. <laughs> now, this one, despite the setting, was not as egregious an error as the former. But nonetheless, I was advised to use the word heureux in future to avoid offence. Noted. And so we come to the source of my nickname. As it happened, I lived with four other researchers during my stay in France, and we often cooked and ate together. They were a great bunch who I'm still in contact with, but at this particular point, it was still early days in our relationships, and my French speaking was also a little bit ropey still, and so I was looking for ways to express myself that were not limited by linguistic ability. Now, you've probably all seen that magic trick where a tea towel begins to levitate off its own accord. <laughs> well, upon noticing a large ladle and a tea towel, musician, oh, sorry, I just revealed my trick. <clears throat> upon noticing a large ladle and a tea towel, it popped into my head to perform this for my new friends. 
So I wanted to announce to my friends what I was about to do. But my issue was that I didn't know how to say trick in French. However, on several occasions previously, I had discovered that simply saying the English word with a French accent sometimes worked. I also have to mention at this point that my French accent was very much a work in progress and being developed despite the voice of my old French teacher ringing in my ears. Je m'appelle Master Blakely, je viens de boys model. <laughs> so despite that, I was doing my best to really ham it up and lean into it as best I could. Um, but in all likelihood, I probably sounded much less like Serge Gainsbourg and much more like Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> Nonetheless, the show must go on and thus I approached my audience to perform my trick. They, all female, were seated at the table when I walked before them, holding a tea towel before me at waist height. Salut les filles, I said. Hello girls, j'ai un trick. Well, let me tell you, they erupted in laughter. I am killing it, I thought. These guys think I'm hilarious. But the thing was, they were not laughing at my magic. They were laughing at my French. Because trick, if you don't know, is French slang for erection. <laughs> but they didn't tell me that. And embarrassingly, they thought that I and this turgid tea towel hovering over my crotch knew exactly what we were doing. But then and there, I was none the wiser. In fact, it wasn't until a year or maybe two later when I visited one of my friends who was now in Toulouse that I was introduced to her colleagues as Adam Trick. <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, quoi? And thus it was explained to me that my magic and my T-Tile TP had so tickled my friend Anne-Claire that her friends all now know me by this particular sobriquet. And so, et donc, je suis Adam Trick. Thank you very much, Adam. Good luck getting that one on Radio Ulster. Uh, merci beaucoup, Adam. Never trust a false ami, indeed. And I'll post a pic of that monkey and join your dictionary on social media. And that is it for this podcast. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Also email, which is story at 10 9com And check out our website. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or a rating at a podcast app if you can. And tell as many people as you can about 10 by 9 and the 10 by 9 podcast. Thanks to all the people who make 10 by 9 happen. Margaret, Leanne and Chris. The gorgeous people of the Black Box and the Waterside Theatre. Our wonderful audiences and all our storytellers. But especially Jim Livingston, Michaela McDade and Adam Milligan. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye bye. <laughs>